everybody, and welcome to this uh, brand new episode of the Satisfied God Podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure, as always, to be with you. Today, what I'm going to do, and this is uh, in the middle of the week, I, I, or close to the end of the week, I, I know, and I told you in the last uh, short episode that I uploaded that we were in the middle of a, or about to start a conference, and we've had that conference, the CMI Bible Conference, um, last week, and um, so I've been doing some work on audios, editing them, and getting them out to people who ordered these sessions, but what I want to do on this particular podcast uh, is to share with you the two sessions that I had during that conference. Today, I'll share with you the first. And then Monday, in our normal time slot, I will um, share with you the second uh, session. These sessions were focused on what you heard in this podcast uh, not too long ago concerning the redemption of the purchased possession and how we took what we've been looking at in Ephesians and, and Paul's statement concerning the redemption of the purchased possession And we took that to Jeremiah and chapters 30 through 33. In these two sessions, while not focusing on them in minute detail, which I am still very much interested in doing on this podcast um, as we go, but I did hit the high points and looked at some of the verses that I think will help to clarify some things concerning our redemption. And when looking at them within the context of those particular chapters in Jeremiah, I think it's so interesting that the things that Jeremiah is describing in clear clear, uh, language and then clear testimonial imagery with the buying of the field and the putting of the document in the earthen vessels, as we'll talk about, it is clear that these chapters are are specifically dealing with the coming of the new covenant, the writing of the new covenant in our hearts. That comes at the moment of new birth. We, We recognize that to be the case. However, so many of the things that are also pointed out in multiple places in these chapters have been unfortunately divorced from the context of the new covenant and pushed out into the future as a as an unfulfilled yet unattained reality. And yet in the context of those chapters it is evident that those things are part of and are guaranteed to us in the context of new, the new covenant, in the context of I will write my laws in their hearts. I will you know, give them a new spirit. I will put my law into them. I will write it, engrave it in them. This is the indwelling of the person, the life, the Paul talks about the law of life that is now in us, that has freed us from the law of sin and death. There's been an internal transaction wrought of God in the heart of every believer that has brought into that believer the 
the legally binding covenant. Jeremiah also says he's speaking to his son, looking forward, looking at Christ and the messianic uh, purpose of his coming. And he says, I will make thee a covenant to the people. And this is the very thing he's addressing. And I want that to, <clears throat> at least scripturally, sink in. That so many, and I think these two sessions that I'm going to share with you will touch on that um, in some ways that may clarify these things for some of you. And again, as we go into the uh, coming episodes, we may delve into these things in a little more detail. But I want you to at least scripturally see that many of the things that the church yet pushes into the distant future, that the church says will one day be, is the very result of the new covenant dwelling in our hearts, is the result of the binding legal reality of Christ in us, that which binds our soul to a redemption that is unchanged, unaltered, and eternal. It is a permanent and fixed reality that nothing can uproot. Not even you, not even me. We don't have the power to override a a redemptive transaction that God has wrought. So in these two sessions, I want us to look at that and examine that as in the depth that I was able to get into. And I, I make some very strong statements, some very strong emphasis in these two, um, in these two sessions. And I want you to consider it. I want you to understand that our salvation is so much greater than most understand, that most people hear, even from the pulpit. Our salvation, when we say it's Christ in us, I want us to get at least a glimpse of the gravity and the weight of that statement. What does that mean? Well, it means, it means so much more than a couple of sessions can encapsulate. Um, but as we do, and as we are afforded to do in these podcasts, we just continue each and every time to try to say it as the Lord is sharing it with us. And hopefully it will not only clarify some scripture, and help you in the scripture, but it will motivate your heart to turn and see Jesus, to set your affection, to know the grace of God that has abounded and does yet abound unto us. That's what the gospel should do. It should declare to you the salvation that Christ is in you presently as a believer, and in so doing, it motivates the soul to seek a face-to-face -face encounter with the salvation that is in you, with the 
all spiritual blessings who abides in your soul. The redemption of God that has been bestowed as a gift, a guarantee that anchors you in the midst of your ignorance. Because as I'll say in these, in these sessions, ignorance always will be present. But in the midst of our ignorance, Christ abides as the guarantee and the binding substance of our redemption. And in that truth, we are known of God. And when we declare the way in which we are known of God, it motivates the soul to know even as we are known and pray for God to reveal in us the great salvation that he has given. So we'll start with this first session and we're entitling this the evidence of redemption. And I hope you enjoy it. If I can be of any help to you, if I can answer any questions, please feel free. Email me, text me, call me, and we will we will try to at least begin a conversation. Until next time, our next session, just know I love you and I appreciate you so much. Amen. I, um, I appreciate what has been said up to this point and um, what I want to do is just confirm what's a, your beautiful presentation of not only salvation, redemption, but the necessity of seeing, knowing, and comprehending. And that is always the need. I've always said it's not a question of do we have a perfect salvation. It is a question of what of that perfect salvation do we comprehend? Do we understand? Do we see in the face and person of Christ? That's the need. That's the need that the soul that is born again possesses. What I want to do, though, during this time is express to you in, any, in, in a particular way. We're going to spend a lot of time in Jeremiah, but we're going to read some verses tonight uh, to get us there. But particularly in Jeremiah, we're going to be in chapter 30 through 33. We're just going to hit in some of those areas because there's not a whole... There's not a whole lot of time to hit every verse, and in two hours, not going to happen, but we're going to try to say something. I want us to understand that there is a power that binds us, that holds us in place. There is a reality that the soul possesses that is born of the Spirit that is unchanged and unchangeable, that is perfect and unalterable that keeps us in place even in the midst of our ignorance, that holds us safe and secure even when we are oblivious to it, to how good it is, it's still good, to how perfect it is. And trying to assess the perfectness of it looking at ourselves, it is perfect because it is of God and not of ourselves. 
That's the salvation we have. It is that salvation I want to talk to you about. And I'm going to use Jeremiah to do some of that. And I want to talk, it in the light, let's talk about it in the light of redemption. And because I want us to understand ignorance is always there. I, we're always ignorant of it. I mean, we're talking about an eternal reality that is measured by the fullness of Christ. How much of that do we know? And if, as the scriptures say, if you think you know anything, you know not yet as you ought to know. Amen. We have an eternal, vast, beautiful salvation. And ignorance is always present. But here's the fact. Ignorance does not equal absence. Ignorance does not mean it's not present. Ignorance means I just have not seen what is present. And the soul is always, by the spirit of truth, bid to come see. Come and see. Come and see this man. Come and see this life. Come and see the gift that I have given you. This is not an attainment that we're after. This is a gift. God has bestowed to the soul, and that soul is always being bid by the Spirit of truth because that's the basis upon which he works to come and see the truth. Grow in the knowledge of this grace that has been bestowed so perfectly and bountifully to us. So, to begin, I just want to, I mean... There's a lot of verses, a lot at the beginning we may not understand what they all have to do. We're going to talk about redemption. We're going to get into Ephesians in a moment where he talks about the redemption of the purchased possession. And then we're going to go to Jeremiah and see that played out. It's beautiful. It's much more beautiful than I'll be able to say it, I promise you. But it is a beautiful picture. And I tell you, go through these chapters in Jeremiah and just see it. It is beautiful. Just lovely. But to begin, there's uh, the, the Psalm 130, verses 5 through 8. I just want to read this to get us, get us started. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord, with the Lord there is mercy. And with him is plenteous redemption. Hear those words. Plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's focus upon that just for a second. With him is plenteous redemption. Remember what Paul would write in Romans chapter 8. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's the plenteous redemption, that with him he has freely bestowed to us all things. Paul will write in Corinthians, and he'll say, what God has bestowed to us, we have been given the Spirit, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of God that we may know what he has in grace fully and freely bestowed to us. This is a salvation that is great. And most people have no, because they're not told. 
I mean, we talk about the revelation of Christ, and that is a necessity. However, it would just be good if they could hear it from the pulpit every now and then. I mean, the soul that's out there, we're looking for someone with beautiful feet, right? To say, your God reigns. That's what the gospel is. It is a declaration of the sovereign rule of a perfect man. It's what it should be. If not, it's not the gospel. (laughs) If it's talking to you and telling you how to do and why you should do it and giving you instructions, it's not the gospel. The gospel is the declaration of the sufficiency of Christ in you. And then that gospel, because it's so pure, bids the heart to come and see. It doesn't try to tell you something and beat it into you like that's a way to do it. It tells you, here's where I stop. I love when Paul writes in Colossians, he says, I've been made a minister of the gospel. And we preach him. But then he says, but it is God who makes him known. Whom God makes known. That's got to be the limitation we understand we have. As preachers or teachers or whatever. We are limited to say, here he is. This is how great he is. He is awesome. He is full. And you are complete in him. And then what will you do? Say, come and see. And pray for him like Paul prays for him. In the light of all of this perfection, I'm praying God will open the eyes of your understanding. Flood it with light that you may see and know. But what I'm telling is there's something perfect to see. There's something real to see. There's a life that keeps you when you, you can't keep yourself, thank God. You're not God. Stop trying to be. We have been brought into the rest of God. The whole reason, one of the major reasons, they were taken into captivity. And that's one of the pictures here. They were taken into captivity was they would not observe God's rest. You hear those words? It's not that they wouldn't finally fall in line and be rested and have their rest. They would not submit and observe God's rest. We've come to God's rest. We've come to the thing, the the one, the person of whom he says in testimony in Genesis, but in reality, this is good. This is my Sabbath day. I have reached my conclusion. I am satisfied fully. That's who we have as our salvation. That's the redemption that we possess. That is our life. So, with him there is plenteous redemption. In Romans, I'm just going to read a lot of verses so you can follow them if you want or write them down and go back to them later. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, meaning that's the righteousness the law and the prophets spoke about. He has now come. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. 
all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Now he's taken this whole chapter, the first part of this chapter up to this point, and he has just showed you the nature of men, whether they are Jew or Gentile. He said, there is none righteous, no, not one. And everybody reads that and says, hold on a minute. There's none that seeks after God. And you're like, wait a minute. I pray all the time. Because that's what we do. We justify it. We can't understand the true raw corruptibility of men. And the perfect undefiled beauty of God. They are not the same. That's why grace and mercy are necessary. Most people have no clue that we need grace. <laughs> they don't understand the mercy of God is necessary. Why? Because you are not perfect, nor shall you ever be. And the reality that God has made him to be unto us, righteousness, redemption, sanctification, that tells you right there in that one verse, God had to do something and become the source of the thing that we can now boast in. Because there is no room in truth to boast except in the Lord who has performed such a perfect work. And that's what I want us to go away in these two sessions that I'm in the whole week. I trust we'll go away with this confidence to boast in God alone. To boast in the perfect God who has performed a perfect work in his house, in his church. And that we would go away rejoicing in such a thing and praying that he would show us the son who makes such a reality. Now, uh, so he goes on, having said, there's no difference. All have sinned. Doesn't matter. Jew or Gentile, you have no boast. For all have sinned and come short of the being now justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that is in him, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Now listen to how Paul uh, says this. He has set forth him to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness. Not ours. It's not the point. That's our point most of the time. That's what we're after. The point was to declare his righteousness for, for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, to declare, I'm sorry, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just. Do you hear that? He's taking it totally out of me, totally out of you, and said the whole point of God was to declare, here's the righteous one. Here's the just one. But he who is just and righteous is the justification and righteousness of those who believe. That's the salvation we have. It's the salvation Paul would talk about. I've been in the study in Ephesians, and I haven't gotten through the first 14 verses yet, and I've been there for 20 lessons. And there's a reason. It's amazing. Those verses in the first chapter set forth such an eternal 
beautiful, preordained purpose that God had and now has fulfilled in his church. He has fulfilled it in Christ, given it to his church as a gift. All spiritual blessings. What does that mean? (laughs) I mean, you think we have a grasp on that yet? No. All spiritual blessings. In whom you have redemption. In whom you have forgiveness of sin. You remember, he contextualizes everything. In fact, commentaries would say this should have been called the letter of in-ness. Because everything he says, he prefaces by saying, in him this is so. In him this is real. Nowhere else. It has to be in the context of in him for it to be a reality. You know what that means? It is of him and not of us. That's salvation. That's mercy. That's our redemption. And so, this is the work of God that has been performed. This is, and then he begins again... He brings that redemption, and I have a bunch of stuff I'm skipping over tonight, but he brings that redemption into one person of God. And here's a couple of versions of this. This is from, uh, or uh, let me read just in the King James, it, where we won't have to explain some of the translations. But Of him are you in Christ Jesus. The Kenneth Weiss translation says, Out of him as the only source are you in Christ Jesus. Who has made unto us wisdom. And if you look at that in the, uh, like a literal translation, wisdom is like the heading over all of it. This is God's wisdom that he has performed. In fact, he takes the next chapter and begins to describe that wisdom that no man knows. Only the Spirit of God knows. And we speak this wisdom, Paul says, to those who are what? Perfect. The word means complete. To those who are perfect, we preach this to those who are perfect. Are we waiting on people to comprehend everything to finally say, now you are, now you're qualified to hear this? Absolutely not. If that was the case, I'd never be qualified to hear it because I'm so always, and you are too, ignorant of the fullness of Christ that's in us. There's an area, there's multitudes of areas that we don't know. But guess what that means? There is an eternity of God showing to us the vastness of his son. So if the knowing of him made something real, I'm in trouble. But if he makes it real to bid me to come and know it, then I have a journey for the rest of eternity, a journey of love, a journey of joy and rejoicing. This is not a condemning message saying you don't have anything. This is saying you've got everything. You've got it all, man. I mean, the, 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 uh, the letter says, all things are yours. That's the truth. That's the truth. That's the gospel. That's good news. Yeah. The good news is not everything's on hold, you know. No, the good news is all things are yours. And all things are not far off. They're in you because Christ is in you. Now, 
set your heart to know him. That's the only requirement. It's simple. It's not hard. It's not, we're not talking about, you know, calculus here, which was hard for me. <clears throat> I didn't even go that direction. You know, I took business math in senior year, so I wouldn't have to go to calculus. That's, I know. <laughs> I learned to do a checkbook. That's as far as I went. And we think that's confusing. Try to go into the eternal things of God. No. The same grace and mercy and divine power that brought us into such must show us where he's brought us. Must make known to us the perfections of where we are. Or guess what? We'll continually try to find it in ourselves. There's a lot in me that would say you're disqualified. And I would say... Absolutely. But there's nothing in him. And you know who he is? He's our life. He's the one that makes this real. He's the one that determines the sufficiency of salvation. He's the one that keeps us and anchors us in place. And that's what I want to show you in these verses if I can shut up and get to it. Uh, anyway. But... <clears throat> So, with this redemption, uh, I'm going to skip over a lot of things, and we're just going to go ahead and turn to Jeremiah. And again, we're going to spend a lot of time here in Jeremiah. Um, no, well, keep your finger there, just for a second. <laughs> let's, go, let's go one place here. Yes, thank you. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm just going to read this because this is kind of what got me started on looking at this um, portion of uh, Jeremiah. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to, when I read these verses, I want to stop and just talk about everyone, but you can't do it. Um, verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. That's the wisdom we just talked about, the wisdom and truth that he is. He has abounded to us, where sin abounded, grace is much more abounded. It's the same thought there, but Having made known in us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. That's such, a, that's such a profound thought. When we get into Jeremiah, it's actually going to say something like this. Because in, in, in chapter 32 of Jeremiah, God tells him, you've got to buy this field from your cousin. You need to buy this land. And he tells him, you have the right of redemption. To buy this land. You're the only one that has right of redemption here. And then he says, don't, he tells him, buy it for yourself. Now this is a picture of the redemption of God that is given to us. This is a picture of the purchased possession. This is the picture of redeemed by his blood. We're going to see all of it comes into the reality of the new creation and the new covenant. 
But he tells him, buy this for yourself. And I always thought, that doesn't make sense. He's supposed to buy it for them because he's buying it so that it will be their possession. But the beautiful thing is, because he bought it for himself, that secured it for everybody. You see what I'm saying? If God did not, here's the thing. Everybody says, he died for me. Okay, he did. But he did it to fulfill his own eternal purpose. You understand? He did it for himself. He did it to conclude his eternal intent. And the fact that it's his possession means it's secured. If it's in my hands, it's not. If it's in his hands, it's secured. If he purchases it for himself and it's his possession now, it's secure for all. Because it's in good hands now. If he gave everybody a piece and a a part of it and says, this is your part, this is your part. And guess what? Most of the parts would have been gone. They'd have done something with it, sold it for money, something. Because that's us. But he bought it for himself. Now, I'm not going to linger there because we hadn't got there yet, but... That's, that's a beautiful thought. But then he says, um, according to the good pleasure of his, which, uh, a good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, which are in heaven, which are on earth, even in him. Now, he's speaking of that which is in heaven and earth. Again, talking about the Jew and the Gentile, both. He's going to, Further expound on that in chapters three, 2 and 3, mainly 3. And I went through all these things, so I'm not going to do that again. But <laughs> then in the next couple of verses, in 11, 12, and 13, he differentiates between the Jew and the Gentile. And he says, in whom we have also obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. He's speaking there of the Jew because then he says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Those who first had the promise and first had hope. That's the word hope, not just trust. It's the word hoped. We had a hope. Paul says in him we have received that hope fulfilled. As those who first had that expectation given of God, we've received him. And then he says to the Gentiles, in whom you also, the word trusted or hoped is not there. It's, it's, it's in italics in, King, in this Bible and it's not there when you look it up. It says, in whom you also, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's going to be important when we get into Jeremiah. You were sealed. With the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. And we read these things in King James or whatever, and we read commentaries, and we think, oh man, all this uh, from chapter 3, 4, 5, we read all that, and we say, man, that's great, we got a great salvation. And then we read verse 14 and say, well, guess we got to wait on that. Sure sounds like it. No, it doesn't. It's not what it's saying. It's not talking about the future. The earnest of the inheritance is the guarantee of it. 
That's the word, the spirit in you, the spirit of Christ, Christ in you, is the guaranteeing factor of it all. He guarantees it. He makes it so. He secures it. Now, again, I don't have time. I've got a lot of verses to prove that. Come to me later, I'll give them to you, okay? Don't have time right now. But, I mean, there's, there's three or four verses that I can point to, we can talk about, that says the Spirit of God is the earnest of our inheritance. He guarantees this. His presence, listen to these words, because this again is going to be what Jeremiah talks about. His presence in us guarantees all things to us. He makes it so. What do I have to do? You are the beneficiary of a gift. All you've got to do is know the gift he's given you. Because Everything else is handled. It has been handled by a price that has been paid. It has been handled by a transaction called redemption that has liberated the soul from the bondage and captivity of sin and corruption and brought us into the perfect life of another man. That we may be found in him having nothing. That sounds terrible to some people. But that is the beauty of salvation. You don't need anything of your own because he is everything you need. God does not ask you for anything. He gives you everything that he asks you for. His, I mean, I don't know how many other ways to say it. You run out of words after a while. But then... It says until, and everybody reads the word until the redemption of the purchased possession, and they say, well, definitely that's in the future. No, the actual word is unto, meaning all of this was unto the redemption of a purchased possession. Who is that? Us, his church, who he redeemed and bought with his own blood. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You who are enslaved, redemption also means bought from the bondage of slavery. We who are enslaved to sin are now what? Slaves to righteousness. You know what that is? That's called redemption. You mean I'm still a slave? I'm not just free? No. You're free because you're a slave to him. Let that sink in. That'll take a while. You're a slave to him. You're a slave to righteousness, which makes you free. That's beautiful. All right. So in Jeremiah, having said that, talked about this perfect redemption of a purchased possession. Because everything he said up to that point, spiritual blessings, redemption, forgiveness of sins, all of it. That's what this is. That's the redemption of a purchased possession. To bring them to the thing he fully intended to bring them to from before the foundation of the world. He's done it. He's done that in Christ. We are what? You have come to Mount Zion. 
You have come to the city of the living God. And most importantly, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We're going to talk about that covenant because this is, this is what he's getting to in this uh, Jeremiah. So in Jeremiah 30, they're being taken over, destroyed. He's allowing this to happen. And he tells them, I'm not going to leave you unpunished. Why? Because they are a stiff-necked bunch of folk. They're not perfect. But he's wanting to tell them and declare to them his restoration, his redemption. What he is going to do to bring them back to himself. He's speaking to them of their deliverance and their salvation in the midst of all of this. And we're going to see what makes that so definite. It's no, there's no ifs to this. This is the God's promise. And he's going to show you how that promise is going to be realized. It's beautiful. So he says, uh, let me, I don't know really where to start here. We're just going to read it in here instead of my notes. Um, therefore, verse 10. Oh, Lord, I don't want to start there either. Yeah, because, okay. Uh, Verse 9, they shall serve, and this is out of context. They shall serve the Lord their God, David their king, who I will raise up unto them. What's that sound like? Sounds like a resurrection to me. Therefore, fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, thy seed from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure." I will not leave thee altogether unpunished. For thus saith the Lord, thy bruise is incurable. Listen to that. Thy wound is grievous. There is none to plead thy cause, that thou mayest be bound up. Thou hast no healing medicines. Recognize this is men in their natural state, in their state. And God is saying, you have no way to heal yourself. Your wound, your disease, your problem is incurable. You know what that is? Sin, death, corruption. That's me. That's a state that is incurable. The woman with the issue of blood comes to Jesus because she has an issue of blood that no man can heal. She has done everything in her power to get it taken care of. And no man, no physician, not the qualified people were able to do it. So she realizes, although ceremonially unclean, not supposed to be in the midst of a crowd, she says, I got to have one chance to touch him. This is the state of men. That's the only answer. I've got to touch Jesus. And what I noticed there, and we're not going to say that's not what I'm, to preach it. We could go there forever. But what I noticed there was, what did Jesus do? She touches Jesus and he didn't say, oh my God, a leper. 
woman or, or somebody with the issue of blood, you're unclean, get away from me. No, because you know what? We can't, touching Jesus, the uncleanness of men, touching him does not transfer our uncleanness to him. You know what it does? It transfers his wholeness to us. He cannot be overtaken with the corruptibility that I am, but I can be healed by the touch of him. And that's what salvation is. It's a complete healing of the soul. It is the complete healing that he promises right here. And, he, and if you read through the thing, it says immediately she was cured. Immediately she knew something had happened. That's what happens with us. The moment we're born again, immediately. Just like Jimmy tried to do that. And immediately it happens. Why? Because it is. It is just like Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 says. In the twinkling of an eye. What do you think he's talking about? He's talking about salvation. He's talking about when we who are corruptible put on incorruption. That's salvation. <clears throat> that is the fulfillment of this promise right here because this is what he says to those who have an incurable wound. Why criest thou for thy affliction? Your sorrow is incurable for the multitude of your iniquity because thy sins, there's the wound, your sins were increased. I have done these things to you. Then verse 17, I will restore health unto thee. And I will heal thee of thy wounds. Saith the Lord, because they called thee an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeks after. I will bring help to you. Isn't that what First Peter, we'll turn there real quick. First Peter. Yeah, First Peter chapter 2. Verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, being dead to sins, this is the work that, this is the result of this work. This is the result of that redemptive act of him being crucified. Death, burial, and resurrection. That we, being now in him, dead to sin, should live unto righteousness. You understand, Paul said... About the Jews, he said, he didn't say they, they don't do it well enough so that they can finally be righteous. He says they have a zeal, not with knowledge though, and they go about to establish their own righteousness instead of submitting themselves to the righteousness of God. You know what that means? There's a righteousness that's already perfect and all God is saying is submit to it. He's not saying do it. He's saying I am that righteousness. Just submit to it. And that's not a work either. We like to make submission a work. That's not something. It's, it's just 
giving yourself over, knowing you are fully dependent on the power of another to do in you what you can't do. Just submit that there is something greater than you. Submit that there's a righteousness unattainable by your works. And just give yourself to the perfection of another and rest in that. And in that state, God bids the soul, now come and see the rest I've given you. Come and see it. And you won't have to worry, do I lack anything? That's what Paul said, right? You lack nothing as you await the revelation of Jesus Christ. You come behind in nothing. You don't lack a thing. And that's the truth. And yet, most here, I lack it all, and I've got to do these things to finally get it. No, you have him. And having him means you have it all. Because if in him dwells the fullness of God, if he's in you, what do you think you have? I mean, it's one plus one. But the beauty and the vastness of what you have is so great that we are dependent on God to open our eyes to see it. It is a spiritual truth. It's not natural at all. It's a spiritual reality. First the natural, now the spiritual. That's where we are. And we are always at absolute dependence on God to make known in us what he has done in us. But that's the key. He's done it already. And we're going to get to that. <laughs> Promise. So then he goes on, having said, I'm going to heal you. This is, oh, I didn't, I don't think I finished Peter here. That we being dead to sin should live under righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. Now listen to these words. Now, we read these words and we automatically think physical healing. Nothing wrong with that. I believe in physical healing. God has healed me. I know he does it. There's no doubt about it. Now, I can't do it, but God can. But this is not talking about physical healing. This is talking about the healing promised here. This is talking about a spiritual healing by bringing you out of death into life. That's the healing that God has performed in the souls of those who have come to him. Making the soul whole and without defect and without disease and without corruption. Making it full and whole. That's salvation. Nothing's missing here. I mean, you want rest. You want shalom. That means nothing lacking. You got it. You got it. All you got to do. The only work of the Spirit from that moment your soul becomes the dwelling place of such perfection is for God to reveal in you the Son of perfection and show you who He is. Now I'll say that until, you know, we, we all drop dead, I'm sure. But then he goes on, and this brother Wayne was talking about that he's looking at this too. But he says, out of them shall proceed thanksgiving, the voice of them. This is after they're healed. They shall not be few. I'll also glorify them, and they shall not be small. And then he says in verse 22, and you shall be my people, 
and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, continuing whirlwind. It shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until he has done it. Listen, until he has done it. And until he has performed the intents of his heart. Isn't that what we just read in Ephesians? He did everything according to his own purpose. In the latter days, ye shall consider it. Then he gets into chapter 31, and you know, this is where we should have started. But he begins to speak to them again about this restoration, about this bringing to himself, bringing them back to the place he promised. And he says here, Hear the word of the Lord, O nation, and declare it in the isles of far off. This is verse 10 of 31. He that scattered Israel gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob, ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he, and they shall not sorrow any more. Isn't that the revelation in the city? He wipes away their tears and they sorrow no more. That's, that's salvation. We're not waiting. It's a people who are in a city that the Lamb is the light of it, the temple of it, all of it. That's the weirdest city, if you think that's a city, that's the weirdest city there could ever possibly be. Because the Lamb's a temple and He's the light and He's everything. You think, that's a weird city. It certainly is. It's a spiritual city. It's a city that is, that is complete and perfectly embodied in him. And those found in, found in him live in the light of the lamb himself. And partake of the waters of life freely. And the healing of, you know, the tree that brings healing to all nations that flow to it. I mean, come on. Someone was asking me about heaven the other day in the city, and I said, listen, go to the tabernacle, look at a four-square room called the Holy of Holies, and there you have it. Amen. The city's four-square. It's the same as the Holy of Holies. And the only thing that the guy in Revelation is writing about is the same thing Paul wrote about in Ephesians. He's just using a lot of imagery to get it done. He's saying the exact same thing. He's declaring the same salvation. All things, heaven and earth passed away, and all things, you know, all, all things were passed away, and the new heaven and the new earth. That's Paul saying old things have passed away, and the new has come. Right. Same thing. Who did it? A lamb who sits on the throne and says, I make all things new. Amen. That's salvation. It's Christ living in us. Yeah. I wish we had 10 days to do that. But we don't. Thank God. <laughs> I kill myself. <laughs> I have a heart attack right here. It <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Anyway, yeah, listen to the Zoom calls. Um, anyway, so he goes on. And he says, Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy will comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. Dude, man. That's all it's about. 
The whole work of redemption, the whole work of grace was so that God would satisfy the souls of his people with his goodness. And guess who that is? That's his son. There is a parable of the man who owns the vineyard and he calls for workers. He goes out and he looks for workers to bring them into his vineyard to work and he gets some in the very earliest of the day and he gets some on throughout the hours, from the earliest hours to the latest where there's only one hour left to work and he's still calling them in, you know. And then they, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Alexa talks to me at home all the time. So, <laughs> so he's calling those people to do, and what you're seeing there is the first who were called were the Jews. They were the first called. And to those people, to those people, there was a wage that was promised and agreed upon. At the beginning of the day, the first people called, he said, this is what I'm going to pay you. I'm going to pay you a penny, which was a daily wage. I'm going to pay you a penny for your efforts. Come into my vineyard and work. <coughs> so the Jews go in. So he goes back out in other parts of the day and he keeps calling people. And it says there they were idle, which means barren. If you look it up, he went to the barren and bid them to come. Isn't that something? And then they go in. And then the end of the day, he gets these other people. They, they work one hour. The other guys have worked all day. The last to come in worked one hour. When it's time to pay, the first people came in and started having quite a fit. Wait a minute. What do you mean they get the same thing we do? We put all this labor in. Do you see the picture? The Jews laboring for it. And here's these Johnny-come-lately Gentiles didn't do anything. They just believed. What do you mean they get the same thing? And God's, and, G, and the owner, Jesus, says, wait a minute. This is my vineyard. And I can do with it what I want to do. And let me get this straight. Are you angry with me? Because I'm good? What argument? I gave you the same thing. I gave you what you agreed to. I only have one wage to give you. See? There's only one thing I'm going to give you. That's it. And we agreed on it from before you began working. Are you mad at me because I'm good? Most are. You know why? Because their labor means more to them than the gift. Their labor means more than the wage that has been given. Because they want God to assess their labor and say, I deserve more. And God says, I only have one to give. And you got it all when you got him. That's the goodness he wants to satiate your soul with. And guess what he did when you were born again? He satiated your soul with his goodness. The reason we don't know how good it is is because we haven't seen. That's it. We just haven't seen. We don't comprehend how good he is. And if we have seen, we still don't comprehend the vastness of the goodness of God that is being given to us. 
Again, the knowing is eternal. Ever-changing, ever-growing, ever-deepening. The clarity of it will always come. But what doesn't change, what keeps us and holds us in the midst of our changing understandings is I am that I am. And I change not. That's who we have. Now, all of this goes down, this healing, all of it goes down to this. Behold, the days come, because this is what he's talking about. This is when this restoration actually happens. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the days that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, <clears throat> which my covenant they break. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will write my law in their inward part. I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. This is the restoration. The promises that God said, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to bring you into the land. I'm going to satiate your soul with my goodness. What does it all boil down to? I'm going to write a new covenant in their heart. You know what that means? The day you were born of God. The day the new covenant came to be in your soul. All of this was fulfilled. Every bit of it. There's nothing more except the knowing of the much more that God has given. The new covenant is written in your heart. It's engraved there. And I'm, I'm, I think I've taken too long. So I'm going to stop. But we're going to get into the 45. Is that right? You're honest with me? God bless your heart. All right, I got 15 minutes. Suck it up, folks. Um, I've got, I've got time. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I don't want to keep it too late. It's, uh, is it 8.30 right at? Uh, or is it 9.30? Oh, is it? Uh, 8.30. You liar. Lied in the house of God. <laughs> Somebody take him out on the pole. Um, anyway, so. <laughs> all right, so I want to go now to chapter 32. We're going to skip a lot of these things. Because after he says this new covenant, his promise is, if my covenant with day and night were to change, then this covenant will change. Meaning, if the sun doesn't come up, and the you know, day doesn't happen, and night doesn't happen, then you'll know that all this is over with. That I have broke my covenant with them. And guess what? It's still happening. <laughs> you know why? Because it's never going to change. And guess who can't change it? Them. The people that he's talking about here. And they're not a pretty people. And neither are we. And we better hope there's something powerful and much more powerful than ourselves to keep us and hold us. And there is. Christ in you is much greater than you. In fact, he says it this way, and we're about to prove that very thing. He says, we have this treasure 
in clay vessels so that it can be readily and evidently seen that the excellency of the power is of God and not the vessel. That's how great this is. It takes over and overrides the fragility and the weakness and the, the, you know, the brokenness of that clay pot. Thank you, Jesus. But why? Because there's something in that pot that's much greater. And here's what it is. And then we'll talk about more of it tomorrow. Okay. He, uh, chapter 32, verse 2. Uh, no, let's go down to where he starts talking to Jeremiah. You can read. They, basically, they put Jeremiah in prison. Jeremiah's in basically a house arrest, which speaks in testimony of Christ's death and burial. So we see in the midst and the context in which this transaction is about to happen. So while he's in prison, God speaks to him and says, Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me saying, <clears throat> Behold, Hanamiel the son of Shalom, thine uncle shall come to thee, saying, Buy thee my field. For the right of redemption is thine to buy it. So Hanamiel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, Buy my field, I pray thee, that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine. Buy it for thyself. Then I knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. Now, let's go back. This is not a change. There's nothing different than what we've just read in 30 and 31. The, the thought, okay, thanks, sir. The thought has not changed at all. What we're seeing here in chapter 32 is just God utilizing Jeremiah to say, this is what this new covenant looks like. This is what this salvation looks like that this new covenant's going to bring in. This is what it's about. And he's going to show this beautiful picture to prove to them the beauty and the staying power of the new covenant. So, basically, it's him saying something and then showing it in imagery, right, using Jeremiah. <coughs> so, he said, I bought the field, verse 9, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. And listen to these words. And I subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses. And weighed him the money in the balances. So I took the evidence of the purchase. Now these, subscribing the evidence means he wrote it down in a legal document. That's what it is. He subscribed it. And guess what? The same word here for scribed is the same word here as I will write it in their heart. Very same word. Why? Because it's the same thing. He's talking about the same thing. Writing it in their heart, the new covenant, subscribing, the, listen to the word, the evidence of the purchase. 
The legal document that proves that I have purchased this. The legal binding document that says this redemption is settled. And I wrote it. And I had witnesses to it. I weighed him the money to purchase it. And I took the evidence of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open, which we'll talk about tomorrow night because that's beautiful. And I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the sight of Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase. Before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison, he wanted this to be seen and witnessed. And I charged Baruch before them saying, this is the beauty of it. This is just, just beautiful. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these evidences. I love that word. The document that proves it. This evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel. That they may continue there for many days. What's the many days? Many days is up when their captivity is over. Means until my promise is fulfilled. But here's the point. This new covenant written in the heart. He plays it out here in this picture. And he says, I'm going to take that which legally proves this document that binds the redemption and says this is real and this is forever. It's been witnessed and the purchase money has been weighed out. It's done. But just to make sure it's secured, he says, put that evidence in an earthen vessel. You don't want to know what your salvation is? You want to know what it really means that we have this treasure in earthen vessels? It's not just gold and diamonds and the things we think about frivolously. It is that in us, Christ in us, is the very evidence and proof of redemption. He is the legal binding power that makes it real. And makes it never changeable. And we're going to talk about that more tomorrow night. But that to me, that's a beautiful picture. What what is it that we have in these earthen vessels? We have the proof. (laughs) You want to look for proof somewhere? You want to look for the evidence that this is real? You want to look for the evidence that your soul is secure and safe? Look no further than in your soul. Within you dwells the proof of it. Within you dwells the evidence of it. You will never be the proof of it. Ever. I don't care what they tell you. You'll never be able to do enough to prove that it's real. But God in one transaction, sealed. Remember what he said in Ephesians? Sealed with the spirit of promise. That's the sealing in the vessel of that which is evidence and proof that this redemption is absolute. And it will never change. And it can't be taken away from you. All right.
So we'll stop there, guys.